Let's pray. O glorious Lord, how holy you are, how great are all your ways, how perfect are all your judgments, how exalted your name. God, you have delivered us, you have called us, you have placed your name upon us, and we are now yours. And yet here we are, God, feeble, frail, proud, and altogether unworthy of the splendor which you've bestowed upon us. But God, you want to be with us. You are a present God. You have covenanted so that we might be with you forever. And we want to give you all praise today. We worship you, God, because you, though perfect in holiness, desire for us to be renewed, for us to be with you eternally. This was your purpose in all creation, in eternity. And now, God, that story is being uh, exemplified in your church today. God, would we uh, be quick to speak your praises today, and would we be eager to hear what you wish to speak to us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, my name is is Brandon Buller. Um, I'm a licentiate. That's a cool word to say. Uh, in the Central Indiana Presbytery, uh, working on ordination, hopefully going to be done this fall, that I can say that I'm Pastor Brandon Buller. That's something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, really eager to, to do that. Um, and the purpose of becoming a pastor is to move to Fort Wayne. You guys probably are aware of that from the last time I was here. Uh, I intend to plant the second PCA church in Fort Wayne, which is really exciting news. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll, you'll be hearing a lot more about that in the coming months and uh year or so. We're targeting something like 2025 for the launch of worship. So there's still plenty of time and, and things to prepare and get ready. Um, more than anything, I would request prayer uh, and prayer for a harvest. Um, the purpose of church planning is not to realign, uh, you know, play just trading and, and fantasy draft of Christians, but to really proclaim news to people who are not yet in the church. So uh, be praying and thinking about who needs to hear this message, and uh, maybe we can connect over that at some point. But we're not here to strategize about church planting. We're here to hear from the Lord. So if you would, uh, those of you with Bibles, and if not, maybe with phones, would uh, open them to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is the text for today. And uh, once I'm through reading it, please keep it open. I do uh, kind of reference the scripture quite a bit today. Psalm 34. We're going to start at the prescription, the superscription above the the psalmist. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him 
out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the, the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the risk of having a really boring opening to this sermon, I wanted to let you all know that you are indeed in a worship service. Um, I have to tell you that I went to seminary. Um, I spent a lot of time studying just so that I could deliver to you such revelatory insights uh, that you are in a worship service. But names matter, don't they? Why is it called a worship service? There are a lot of different things that we could go by. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, sometimes they'll be called a church service, certainly. Um, and if you want to sound really Presbyterian and Reformed, then you'll do what Providence does and call them Lord's Day services. That's a really good name. But we definitely don't call it Mass. Right? Like the Catholics do. But we don't call it a prayer gathering. We don't call it a communion service. We don't call it a sermon service, even though these are all things that we will do on an average Sunday. Our Christian services are named by the action that everybody here participates in. And we're called by God to do exactly that. Most churches in our tradition, they will uh, start with a call to worship, just like we did this Sunday, meaning that God invites us, he calls us, he commands us to gather in his name and bring him praise. It's kind of like he's ringing the dinner bell and we're all showing up. And I find this fascinating because here we all are participating in the same action of worship, gathered together under God's banner. But what's remarkable about that fact is that you all obey God. And yes, the Holy Spirit is going to do that because he does what he, or he affects what he decides to do. But the crazy thing is that all of us arrive with different things on our hearts, different burdens, out of different circumstances, with baggage that's different for every single one of us. We all have barriers that maybe prevented us from wanting to be here today. But our worship is all still unified, even though there's a total difference in every single one of our stories. I find that interesting. And there are some here 
who just yesterday or maybe even this morning had a flare-up of anger, maybe financial distress, or you've been struggling against the besetting sin, but you showed up anyways. Some are having family troubles. A handful of you really wanted to come to worship today. A handful of you wanted anything but to come to church. And that's amazing because we're all here to do this thing that God called us to do together, even though, and especially because we all come from different places and backdrops. Maybe you would have rather had, rather than a worship service, a pep talk service, right? If you go back out into the world. Or maybe you wanted a counseling service to, to address your, your woes. But no, a worship service is what Christians do. And that's because worship, worship is at the core of what a Christian does. And today's psalm, Psalm 34, it is a master class in worship. It's a wonderful praise psalm. And just to read it, it's encouraging just on its own terms. But what we're going to see is that there's actually a lot more to worship in this psalm because it too comes out of a backdrop. There is a setting which makes its praise all the more glorious. So we're going to walk through this psalm little by little in just a moment, and we're going to talk about worship. And the subtitle is the when, the why, and the how. When we pray, when we worship, why we worship, and how we worship. And so let's start now. The when. When do we worship? Well, I'm not talking about the time of day. 10.30 is not biblical, believe it or not, uh, but it is appropriate. Um, I can't find anywhere in Scripture that says you need to worship, even in the morning necessarily, but at 10.30 certainly. So when I'm talking about when do we worship, I'm talking about the occasion of our worship. What circumstances surround us? In what circumstances can we worship God? We can worship God when we're happy. We can worship God when we're sad. We can worship God when times are good. And worship God when times are bad. And I recognize that's really simple to say. But let's ask the author of this psalm. Let's ask David what he thinks. Look at me with the line above the body of the psalm. Like I said, it's called the superscription. Um... It says, a psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech, who sent him away. And we need to do some digging there, because what? <laughs> David acted insane in order to get out of the presence of Abimelech? Let's understand what he's talking about. Let's turn to the book of 1 Samuel. You don't need to go there. I'm going to uh, tell us kind of the, the backdrop of this story. Uh, but this is coming from 1 Samuel. Get yourself in the mindset right now of David, who uh, he was anointed king, right, of Israel because Saul was such a bad king of Israel, the first king. Uh, do you remember that? And, and David did such great work as a warrior in the army of Israel that Saul got really jealous of him. There were these sayings that people would, would say that kind of uh, promoted David over King Saul. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 19... Saul actually tries to kill David. And then in 1 Samuel 20, he kind of doubles down on this and goes on this kind of insane quest to try to murder David. And the situation, the situation from which this psalm arises happens in the very next chapter, in chapter 21. So he just escaped. Let's, let's hold on to this, this frame, right? David just escaped from Saul. He had already been anointed by 
by Samuel as the king. He's on the run from the guy who is currently the king and refuses to admit that the, that the throne belongs to somebody else. And it's worth mentioning that David married Saul's daughter, so he's on the run and maybe won't ever see his wife again. And David's best friend is Saul's son named Jonathan, so we might not see his best friend anymore either. He's fearing for his very life. But David escapes to this other land, and he visits uh, the priest at Nob. He's hungry. He finds bread. God provides for him there. But then he goes to the king of Gath, and that's what the superscription is referring to. Uh, the people there realize that David is a soldier, and they've heard that saying, too, that talks about how good of a general is and how much of a, um, a keen uh, warrior he is. They get a little bit nervous. Is he here to overthrow us? Is he here to assassinate our king? I don't know. So what does David do? His next move is a little surprising, to be honest with you, but it's the best that he could do, given the fact that he's alone. He's in a far-off land. He's under threat from his own king in his own land, and now he's in this other king's court and fears for his own life again. So he acted crazy. He literally put it on. In 1 Samuel uh, 21, 13, it says, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let spittle run down his beard. So he's really acting it up here. And it worked. The, the king decided that this guy was actually crazy and he said, we've got enough crazy people around here. Let's send this guy on his way. So David escapes. What does he do right after that? He writes this song. He writes Psalm 34. He worships and he praises the living God. The first words that he writes down are, are in verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, I don't think David exaggerated when he says, I will praise the Lord, or I will bless the Lord at all times, right? He's most certainly doing it right here uh, in this psalm, in the midst of a very confusing and even frustrating providence. It's not a psalm of triumphant victory and glory, or of courage, or of a man speaking from his dramatic wealth and security. Instead, David praises and blesses God at all times. Even after, just after, he had to act insane in order to escape. The first thing he did when he was allowed to act in his right mind again is he worshipped God. So it's fitting for us too, you here today, to offer worship in the midst of the craziest and the hardest of circumstances. The most fitting occasion to worship God is in every circumstance and all the time. That is the when of worship, all the time. But how can this be? Let's put a pause there for a moment and consider this. Because there's no other person or, or place or thing in the whole universe that you would ever consider giving your praise to when life is this challenging, right? Why is it fitting to worship God when our providence is not what we would love it to be? Um, and we just, about a week ago, celebrated Independence Day, right? I'm going to use this as an analogy. In the U.S., we have the right, the hard-won right, to criticize our government 
don't we? And let's just say that Americans use this privilege, don't we? We criticize our government often. When things are bad, we do not hold back from our critiques. In other countries, citizens are literally compelled by force or by censorship to only speak positively of their rulers. But Psalm 34 is not a result of compelled speech. God isn't forcing David to say this. And we can say that for certain. Because there are many words in the Bible, some of them from David himself, that sometimes will rail against God. Right? They'll kind of say, why have you brought me here? We read Psalm 13 just today. Will you forget me forever, God? This speech is true worship, and we know that David genuinely meant what he said and what he wrote down. And then here's the, here's the why. This is why David will continue to worship God in all circumstances. It's because God is a God of deliverance. Read on with me, starting in verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now when you read those verses there, it's easy to be gripped by all sorts of different perspectives that David sees himself as being delivered. Just look at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Now that's kind of a literal retelling of what is happening at this very moment. David trusted in God, and God answered him, and he delivered him. And he did that by helping David flee from he was most afraid of, his own death. He escaped from Saul, and he escaped from the king of Gath. God literally delivered David from death from the hands of two different kings. And then in verse 5, it gets amplified a little further. Those who look to him are radiant. And now I'm looking at a lot of faces. Radiant is not a word that I would necessarily use to describe them, not that you don't look nice. But radiance, what do we mean by radiance? David definitely doesn't mean that you will be perpetually happy, right? Because even right now, he's writing this psalm likely from inside of a cave until Saul relents. So it isn't just happy circumstances. That's not what radiance means. Instead, it's a joy of a higher order. We shine like the stars of the heavens because God holds onto us tightly all the way until glory. And if you are predestined for this glory, then you can't help but, but radiate that outwards because of your special way of being in this world. And David goes on in that verse to say, their faces shall never be ashamed. Really? Really, David? Uh, you have spit running down your beard. <laughs> your, your faces will never be ashamed. You literally look like a fool in front of your enemies. You look like an idiot. Perhaps to the world he looks like a fool. To his enemies, he looks like a fool. But in the eyes of God, who he aims to please, he is anything but ashamed. When we look to the Lord, we actually don't hide our faces and, and have this kind of a posture, fearing from God and having dread of him. 
we can stand approved in his presence, knowing that he loves us and he chooses to save us. Why? Because he desires to be with us. He desires to have us as his possession. Then verses 6 and 7, they kind of go together as a unit, and they together illustrate what it looks like to put your faith in God, in this deliverer. Verse 6 sets a pattern and says, This poor man cried. David, the king, the rightful king of Israel, calls himself a poor man. Notice that humility that David has. He isn't calling to God and saying, You owe me, God. You're the one who made me king, so now give me all the things I asked for. I'm the guy you picked to do what you mentioned for me to do. Instead, he's calling out to God from a place of poverty with nothing to offer God in return. This is humility. And this is the humility of faith. And verse 7, the other side says, God delivers all who fear him. Fearing God means trusting in him and recognizing his awesome power. Power that can't just be pulled on a leash. It means believing that God has the strength, the ability, the means to do something about your circumstances. It means believing God is capable of doing it, even though he's not obliged to do it. And he will deliver you if you ask him to. It's two sides of one coin. Fearing God means to, uh, to, be, to be aware of what happens to you if you don't trust in him. Right? That's, that's a fearful thing. What happens to you if you don't trust in God? But it also means that you are putting yourself into his hands voluntarily because he alone has the power to do anything about your life. And when you put together this humility towards God and this trust in the power that you have hope in, that is saving faith. That is the faith of a true believer. And God delivers all those who have this type of humble reverence of him. But you might at this point have, have an objection to what I've been saying so far. Why does God allow the trouble to happen in the first place? Yes, we know that God is a deliverer, but wouldn't it be easier on God's part and on ours if the bad stuff didn't happen to us in the first place? Well, James Boyce, who's a PCA pastor who's now in glory, says this, commenting on David's situation here. He says, deliverance is one thing, exemption from trouble is another. And I think we have a really hard time understanding why God allows suffering in this world, especially for those who trust in him. Why would David have to go through all of this suffering at the hands of wicked men like Saul when God had already chosen him? He was already granted salvation. Why does he have to go through all this hard stuff? Our human nature just recoils against suffering. We want nothing to do with it. And rightly so. Right? Because we know that God created this world wonderfully. He proclaimed it to be very good. In our original state, we didn't have to suffer at all. Adam and Eve were in bliss, in paradise, in Eden. So suffering, we could say it's like an alien intruder that, that we allowed access to our world when Adam first sinned in the garden. In other words, it's actually appropriate and right for us to have this recoiling reaction against suffering in our daily lives. But, 
to the person who questions why David had to suffer before he was delivered is actually very similar. It's analogous to asking why Adam was created with the capability of sinning in the first place. You see the correlation there? Because when we wonder why did David have to suffer, we're actually questioning why does suffering exist? We know that suffering exists because of Adam's first sin in the garden. Why was he allowed to sin if he was created very good? This is a tough pill to swallow for Christians, I think. Because there's not a ton of clarity in the scriptures around this. We do not know exactly what's in the mind of God when it comes to his eternal plan, right? That is far deeper than our minds can fathom. But what we do know is that God's ways are above our ways, as it says in Isaiah 55. And and we know that because of the way the plan of salvation was executed, his son Jesus was more than enough to deliver us and overcome sin and suffering. So we know that his plan worked. And perhaps, isn't it just wonderful and astonishing that that God would display his love not by removing suffering in the moment or from the church in every age, but by joining into the suffering with the church? Isn't that amazing? God with us, Emmanuel, the Messiah had every right to question suffering, to say, I'm not going to put up with that suffering. Wouldn't he? He's God. Why should he have to suffer in the first place? But he didn't argue with God. He said, your will be done. He went willingly to the cross. And that's illustrated in Philippians 2 that says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what I'm saying is that the the question of why suffering exists is actually viewing the problem upside down. Instead, we should ask, God, who am I? Who am I that you would send your son to suffer for me? To deliver me? Could it be that Adam was allowed to sin so that Jesus could be lifted high? Could it be that suffering exists in this world just so that the love of God could be manifested to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ? Could it be that David suffered and still worshipped just so that God's people could see this glorious precursor to Jesus, who also suffered and yet worshipped his heavenly Father. In Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, it says of Jesus, this is talking about Jesus, it says, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's ascribing that quote to Jesus. So Jesus suffered, yes, but he sang the praises of God. David, in this respect, is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus. Both of them suffered, though Jesus suffered more greatly. 
Both of them worship God in every occasion, though Jesus, Jesus worshiped more purely. And all of this so that you and I can withstand suffering in this day because in him you have deliverance looking to another day. But David isn't just a forerunner of Jesus. He actually invites his readers to make a decision in Psalm 34. In fact, if you don't just want to take his word for it, David dares you to test out faith for yourself. It's like a spiritual experiment he's inviting you into. In verse 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a very fascinating verse. It's one that a lot of people have committed to memory. Um, Check out God's promises and see for yourself. That's what he's saying. David isn't just looking back and showing, look how God has delivered me in the past. He's looking forward knowing that God will continue to taste and look the same the next time as well. And not only to him, he's inviting anybody who would read this psalm to do the same. He knows it works for anybody. The call to taste and see is an invitation for you to put your trust and faith in God for yourself. It's a challenge to take his story of suffering and worship and put it into practice in your own life. That's called a testimony. What we have here is David sharing his testimony, his call to believe in God. And I'm sure most of us here probably have someone that at some point in our lives, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, they told us what a difference God made in their life. Perhaps it might have included their own story of deliverance. And then they asked you too to taste and see that the Lord is good. They invited you to trust in God and see for yourself as well. And testimonies, they have a tremendous impact. And here's just one that we can point together to in the scriptures. That's recorded for us for all time. And if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus as your hope and Savior, and you're here today, I'll just emphasize David's words to you. I invite you to personally taste and see that the Lord is good. It's indeed the only way to recognize that the next part of that verse is true. That blessed are you when you take refuge in him. Today is the day to give it a try if you haven't before. And if you want to know how to do that, talk to me afterwards, talk to one of the elders afterwards. We would be happy to talk to you and pray with you about how to know Jesus personally. Now, after David shares this testimony, he he incites all Christians, his saints, notice, to fear the Lord as well. So even those who are inside of the church, they also need to hear this story of deliverance. Fear the Lord and, and put your faith and trust in him for your own deliverance as well. Both in all of your life circumstances and for your very salvation. And he says in the second half of verse 9 that, Those who fear him will have no lack. And here again, we might have an objection, right? This might leave a little bit of a sour taste in your mouth because a lot of times we certainly feel like we have a lack, don't we? A lack of faith, a lack of resources. But God gives us what we need. Sometimes it's only just what we need. Sometimes it's more than what we need. Sometimes God actually uses the church community to provide the things that we need. And as Christians, we know that God uses us, his people, to fulfill his promises all the time. In fact, God even commands in both the Old and New Testaments that Christians are watchful of their neighbor 
and that they make sure that nobody in your gates lacks anything that they need, right? So God fulfills this promise probably through you. We can read this verse and know that at least occasionally, if not very often, we are the way that God provides for those in need. But there's also a spiritual sense that we can take this verse as well. We, Christians, lack nothing. We lack nothing when we have faith in God. Because there is a secure and a safe, eternal future. We have a final resting place with God, alive, embodied, resurrected. You have everything you need for that everlasting life if you have faith in your Redeemer. Now in verse 11, we're going to answer the question, the how of worship, because David changes directions. Uh, some have divided this psalm in two parts, calling the first 10 verses that we just read um, the hymn of Psalm 34, and verses 11 to the end they call the sermon, the hymn and the sermon, because in the beginning he exalts God and worships God, and then in the second half he teaches about how to worship God. So this is going to be the how of Christian worship. Uh, keep in mind, David is not talking about a worship service, like we were talking about at the beginning. This is more of a how to live as a God-fearing worshiper. Because if, God is, if David is going to worship God at all times, that doesn't just include Sunday mornings, right? Furthermore, David did not think of worship as just singing songs to God. We've got to remember David's context. He lived somewhere around 3,000 years ago, a little bit more than that. The worship lives of God's covenant people were very different than we think of today, right? Uh, certainly they did have a holy Sabbath rest. It was on a different day than we celebrated on. But they consecrated that day to the Lord. But it didn't look a whole lot like church as we think of it today, right? They didn't have church buildings in quite the same way. Uh, they didn't come and sing psalms or songs because that book was still being written, right? He's writing down a psalm right now. Um, worship was not a time that they sang psalms together because that wasn't part of the Old Testament religious system. The religious system looked a lot more like performing sacrifices and then being obedient to the Ten Commandments and God's laws in your entire life. It was a total life-encompassing affair, right? It included all of your life, and it included... Adherence to those sacrificial laws, obedience to the law codes, and importantly, loving God inwardly in the heart. Verse 11 says, He will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he's going to show you what it means to worship God with your whole life. And here's what he wants you to know about worshiping God with your whole life as a righteous person, a God-fearing person or a worshiping person. It says that this person avoids speaking lies, speaking evil and telling lies. Um, the righteous person repents from evil, turns from evil and does good. And the righteous person seeks out peace and works to maintain it. And depending on your attitude regarding those things, the way David sees it, God looks at, at all people in one of two ways. Either... You worship God by doing these things in your whole life, or and, and, and therefore you're considered a righteous person. Or else, you don't worship God with your whole life. You're called the wicked. One or the other. In verse 
in verses uh, 15 through 22, David back, basically goes back and forth between a description of the way God will treat a righteous person and God will treat the wicked person. It's kind of pronouncing uh, future outcomes for both the worshiper and the non-worshiper. And rather than going back and forth, I'm just going to make a list of the things that he talks about. Uh, first, I'm going to start with the non-worshiper. These are things, these are the outcomes for the non-worshiper, the, those who David calls the wicked. Verse 16, it says, The Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He cuts off their memory from the earth. In verse 21, it says, Affliction destroys the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. It doesn't take a genius to say that those are not good outcomes. Um, and it's a pretty stark idea, honestly. Uh, he, he doesn't talk about a lukewarm category, a third category, if you will, that do some good things, but they don't really acknowledge God as, as their Lord. Right? You're either the righteous and you are subject to blessing or you are the wicked and you're subject to calamity and punishment. You either worship God or else you're the wicked. There's no in-between. And, and this is to say that from God's perspective, there's basically those who serve him, those who he's called to worship him, and then there's everybody else. There are those who are destined for redemption, those who worship God, and those who are destined for punishment. Those who do not acknowledge God. Or even in some places in this psalm, it says those who don't even acknowledge God's people. Those are the two categories. And it begs the question, doesn't it? Which category do you belong to? Are you the wicked or are you the righteous? If you're the wicked and you don't acknowledge God, here's the good news. You can actually freely join this category of the righteous. And here is what comes as a result. If you are the righteous or if you want to join the righteous, here is your outcome. God's eyes will watch over you. His ears are open to your cries for help. He will hear his people when they call to him. He delivers his people from their trouble, as David himself has experienced in his writing. The Lord remains near to the brokenhearted. He saves those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person has affliction, but the Lord will rescue them every time. The Lord will protect the bones of the righteous. He will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. And again, it doesn't take a genius to say, that's really good news. I want to point out some things from this list for the righteous, because the point of David's worship is not about his own performance of those things that we listed before, is it? It's about God's grace. Like David could have said, he never once said something like, one slip of the righteous person is enough to earn condemnation. Right? Instead, he says in verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's grace. David never says that the righteous person might have reason to doubt their faith when hard things happen to them. No, instead David says, the Lord delivers him out of them all. David does not say, God favors the one who has their whole life put together and uh, those who worship him perfectly inside and out. Instead, David says, the Lord is near to the broken body. And he saves the crushed in his spirit. So which one of you is the broken hearted children of God? 
Which one of you has crushed spirits? Have you come to church worrying that God himself is going to find you out? And that he's going to condemn you? Have you been the one who doesn't have your whole life in order? Are you the one who feels like you're lacking something? The point that David is making is that God does not turn his face from you. He welcomes you. He invites you to worship because of grace, because of his grace. It doesn't say that God hears the people who don't have trouble in their lives. In verse verse 17, it says, The Lord hears you when you need help. And it assumes, it actually assumes that the people of God will have trouble and that God can actually deliver them out of that trouble. Because our God is a God of deliverance. So what does this mean for how we worship God? The how of worship, therefore, isn't to execute your life perfectly. Though we are called to be sanctified. What it means to worship God with your whole life, it means you turn to God in faith. And knowledge that His grace will cover you. And that He can and He will rescue you. Because that's what He wants to do. That's the type of God he is. So the how of worship is you worship God by thanking him. Thanking him for who he is. He's a deliverer who's full of grace and salvation for those who have trust in him. His whole plan, the plan of redemption, crafted by the Trinity in eternity, was to come close to the brokenhearted. Was to come close to you when you needed help. That was the point of salvation. And he did. He came close to the brokenhearted by sending his son among us. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. How? By being crushed for our sins. And that is a God worth worshiping at all times. Let's pray together. Father God, we are burdened people and we are broken, we're humble. And in that humility, God, we turn to the one place that we know has eternal life. As the disciples say, where else can we go, God? We must come to you. There's no other place to turn. And so therefore, we're going to worship you at all times. Certainly, we worship you today in this worship service that you have called us into, you've invited us to, and that we arrived because your spirit brought us. Uh, But we also, God, intend to worship you in thanksgiving, knowing that as we leave here, in all of our circumstances in life, in the hardest places, you are a God of deliverance. Some things God will feel too much to handle. We certainly do feel lack at times, and often that makes us uh, scared of you or lose trust in you. But God, we know that you will deliver, and how do we know that? We know that because, God, you sent your Son to suffer with us. We don't suffer alone. We suffer with a Redeemer. We suffer with the presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's the fact that we have a suffering servant, a suffering deliverer, that we know our suffering is not in vain, and that it's not wasted, and that it's not everlasting. We know, God, that we will be where Jesus is with a resurrected body, 
staring you in the face with the warmth of your countenance upon us. That is what deliverance looks like for us, God. We've seen this repeated throughout history. We look back to the Exodus as uh, a, a precursor to the deliverance that we will experience ourselves. God, we, uh, we know it is true, and we put our faith in that, uh, in that glorious premise that Jesus suffered so that we might have deliverance. God, be with us the rest of our worship and accept it uh, through Jesus who worships you perfectly. We praise this in our son's name. Amen. Amen.